You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. Uh, if, you, if you have a Bible or uh, uh, your, your phone, uh, I encourage you to leave it at Matthew 17 because we're going to look at what was just read a little more closely uh, this afternoon as we always do as we get into God's Word. Uh, together. Uh, but before we do, I want to show you something. Um, you may wonder why this box is sitting here. I want to show you something that actually means a lot to me personally. Uh, this is uh, it's a little bit heavy. Uh, I call it my glory box. Uh, it was given to me by my wife in 2005 uh, to be kind of a receptacle for all the things I was accumulating that year. And uh, I want to show you a few. I'm, I'm going to unleash the glory on you here in a minute. I want to show you a few things in, in this box. Before I do, let me just say this. Most of y'all will not give a rip about what's in this box, okay? And some of you might actually hate it, uh, but just, just humor me for a moment as I, as I show you this. Uh, in, in 2005, uh, the Texas Longhorns won the national championship. They beat USC in the Rose Bowl. A few years before that, I had prayed, God just once in my lifetime, if you would give us a national championship, right? So I'm letting you into the shallow prayers of your pastor. Um, and so I, they did that year, and it was, it was glorious, and I started accumulating things uh, that year. Um, and uh, just, I'll just show you a few of them. You know, I started picking up magazines with Vince Young on the cover. There he is after the Rose Bowl, and uh, newspapers from Austin and Dallas and, uh, you know, all over uh, the United States, the USA Today. Um, I, this, was a, uh, this was a game ticket from uh, Ohio State. Some friends and I went up to Columbus. And it was a big game that year. We won that game. And you can't see it, but in this Ziploc, there's some grass from the Ohio State field. Because <laughs> I got on that field after the game, and I'm like, I'm taking some of it with me, right? And so that, that was glorious. Uh, I had my uh, DVD of the Rose Bowl. Uh, I got my uh, national championship T-shirt right here. Uh, I got a Wheaties box uh, with Mac Brown on the cover of it. Uh, I'm sure 11 or 12 years later, this would be wonderful to eat for breakfast. Um, uh, and then, probably my, I won't show you everything, probably my favorite thing that I got that year uh, was just stuff that my little girls made for me, little stories, little artwork pieces. Uh, this is a little short story uh, by Lauren, who is my oldest daughter. She was seven when she wrote this. It's called The Longhorns. Uh, she's now in college, which is very weird to me. Uh, but I thought I'd just read it to you. Um, once upon a time, college football, or once upon a time, football started for college. It was called college football. <laughs> a bunch of people signed up. Soon a guy named Vince Young signed up for it. He won the first game for all the Longhorns. Everybody cheered and people were excited. Uh, they won the next one, and the next, and the next, and so on. Soon, the very last game came. It was called the Rose Bowl. My dad didn't get to go to the game, so he hung out with us. <laughs> There's little teardrops where I've cried over that fact. There were two minutes left in the game. They were loosing. Then, Vince Young scored two touchdowns. They won. Yeah, yes, ha! That was the best. Yeah! The biggest fan in the world, the end. Okay. Now, 
the reason I saved all that stuff from that year in that glory box was I just wanted to hold on right, to a little bit of the glory from that football season. And I think there is actually something innately in all of us that hungers for glory. Right? This box is a little token of that fact. I think there's something in us that wants to be associated somehow with glory. Like we want to be a part of something great or magnificent or weighty or significant uh, in some way. We, we all hunger for glory, uh, I think, in, in, innately. I think we're made for glory. Uh, last week, if you were with us in, in Matthew 16, we saw this in Peter, right? Remember, Peter had, uh, had confessed Jesus to be the Christ. He said, Jesus, you're the final answer to all our deepest longings, our hungers. You're it. And Jesus is like, yes, you're right, Peter, and you're blessed for even knowing that. And then in the very next scene, Peter tries to, to stop, to prevent Jesus from going to the cross. He's like, Jesus, you're not going to suffer. You're not going to die. No way that's going to happen to you. Uh, and, and Jesus is offended by this because Jesus knows that the cross is essential to him being the Christ. And so he says to Peter, Peter, you're like Satan to me. You're, you're, you're like being my enemy right now. Get out of my way. Right? Get behind me. You're talking to me about glory in a false way. You, you want me to pursue glory without the cross, and it's a way of false glory. Jesus was very familiar with the temptation to pursue false glory. Remember in Matthew chapter 4, he was out in the wilderness, and Satan says this to him, the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. And he said to Jesus, all these I'll give you if you'll just fall down and worship me. In other words, you can have all the glory right now. Don't even worry about the cross. I'll, I'll let you rule the world right now. And then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan. In other words, get out of here. Get behind me. Same thing that he had said to Peter. Right? Jesus rejects any pursuit of false glory. Right? Now, in our passage today, you might have noticed that Jesus goes up on another high mountain. But this time, it's to, to, to give Peter and I think give us a glimpse of true glory, right? It, it, to give us, he, he's going to open the glory box so that we can just see, just see a little bit of it, uh, of true glory, which is only found in him, right? Any other glory in the world is false and fleeting that's not found in him. And, and I think we've got to ask ourselves, do I actually believe that? That all other glory outside of Christ is false uh, and fleeting? Uh, Peter, I think, needs a little encouragement that the Jesus team is going to win. Like, Jesus, are you actually going to get the glory? And so Jesus gives him a little glimpse of true glory uh, up on the mountain. Uh, uh, he, he, he takes uh, a moment to share his glory, and it's, it's actually more impressive and more comprehensive than we would imagine. All right, so let's look at Matthew 17 for a moment. And I want to ask this question. How is Jesus glorious? Like, in what ways? And we see a few here. The first way is found in verse 1 and 2. Matthew 17. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. So, it's a little private retreat that's going to happen with Jesus and just three of his guys, Right? I want to stop here for a minute and pause because it says six days later. This is six days after Peter's immense failure where Jesus calls him Satan. That's not a good day for you when Jesus calls you Satan, right? It's a, it had been a bad day. Peter had blown it big time. 
The amazing thing I want you to catch is that Jesus doesn't write him off. Jesus doesn't say, Peter, you're just a knucklehead. You're never going to understand. He says, no, Peter, I want you to understand, right? Come closer to me. I want to show you something because I I want you to get it. I I want you to understand. Because grace is actually what grows us, right? Not rejection, not punishment, not fear. We We grow in grace. And so, when you and I fail in the Christian life, Jesus doesn't push us away. He actually, he wants to pull us close. He doesn't hide himself from us. He wants to show himself more clearly. I mean, if you have blown it in sin or in unbelief, like we all do from time to time, your tendency might be to, to, sit, to kind of take some time off from Jesus, sort of hide from him, like maybe take some time off from the Bible or from prayer or from church, or from community. Because, you know, you know, I blew it with Jesus, and he's probably mad at me. That's actually the exact opposite of what you need to do. You actually need to draw near to Jesus to see him more accurately, more clearly. That's what's going to happen for Peter and James and John up on the mountain. They're going to get this exclusive mountaintop experience with Jesus to see him more clearly. Now, look at verse 2. They're up on the mountain. And Jesus was transfigured or transformed before them. And his face shone like the sun. His clothes became white as light. Now, it's important for us to know that this is not a change of who Jesus is at the identity level, right? It's actually a pulling back the curtain to reveal who he really is at the identity level. But it's not like pulling back the curtain on the Wizard of Oz. Right, remember that? He, the, the Wizard of Oz was all glorious and ominous and awe-inspiring. The, the lion's knees are knocking. He's so scared. And then Toto pulls back curtain, and he's just this little old man. He's not even, he's about Dorothy's height. He's not impressive at all. That's what it's like. When you pull back the curtain on, all, on, on most any of our lives, you usually don't find something more impressive and better than when you see out here, right? This outward appearance and outward behavior is usually our best foot forward, right? It doesn't get any better for me than like right now, right? I'm dressed up a little bit. I'm preaching the Bible. That's about as good as it gets for me, <laughs> If you dug around in my life a little bit and pulled back the curtain, it'd be pretty humbling, because right, my sin runs deeper than, than I want to let on. Right? My weaknesses are more widespread than I want to let on. I'm not as glorious as, as I maybe would want you to think or portray that I am. Right? I mean, we've seen for the past few months two people whose lives have been under intense personal scrutiny. Right? Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. Like teams of people have been digging around in their lives, pulling back the curtain and dropping October surprises on us. Bus conversations, WikiLeaks. And when the curtain gets pulled back, we're like, oh man, that is not good. That is not good at all. That's just the nature of when the curtain gets pulled back. With Jesus, it's just the opposite. When the curtain gets pulled back on Jesus, he's actually more impressive and better than he's letting on. His face, it says, shines like the sun. Can't even look at it. His clothes are spotless, glowing, 
right? Listen, this is not a new Jesus. You've got to know this. This is who Jesus has always been and always will be. John chapter 1, he was glorious before he ever became a human being, right? We said it in the profession of faith, before he took on flesh. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, that's him, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In him was life, and that life was light for men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In our profession of faith, we said that Christ is the reflection of the glory of God. It's glory he's always had from eternity past. He's always had that. But he's also glorious in the future. In Revelation chapter 1, John writes this about his vision of Christ in the future. He said the hairs of his head were white like wool. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His voice was like the roar of many waters. I love that. What's Jesus sound like? Like the biggest river you've ever heard. And then he says his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. Eternity past, eternity future, this is who Jesus is. What, Jesus, what Peter and the, and the boys are seeing up on the mountain here is not a new Jesus, right? It's just a revelation of who Jesus has always been and always will be, right? He is glorious in his person. Glory is essential to him. You know what I mean by that? Like it, for us, he doesn't have to pursue glory or receive glory. It's part of who he is. For us, glory is always derivative. It, it, meaning we all, the only way we can get glory is from outside ourselves, from another source. But in Jesus, it's part of his person. It's part of who he is. It comes from him. It's always there. It's just hidden in the, in the humble person of Jesus of Nazareth. So that's the first way Jesus is glorious. He's glorious in his person, in his essence. Now, that would be enough to prove that he's glorious. But there's more. Look at the second way. It's in verse uh, 3 and 4. They're up on the mountain. Jesus is glowing. He's, He's bright as the sun. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we're here. If you wish, I will make three tents here. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And so now uh, Jesus is not the only one up on the mountain. Moses is there. Elijah is there. Two of the most revered uh, figures from the Old Testament are there. Remember, Moses was the great leader who received the law of God on Mount Sinai. Uh, Elijah was the great prophet who defended the honor of God on Mount Carmel, and now here they are uh, on Mount of Transfiguration, right? And they're just talking to Jesus. They're having a conversation with Jesus. Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets, the law and the prophets. That phrase meant to uh, uh, someone who was in in the nation of Israel, the law and the prophets meant the, the entire Old Testament, the scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures. And everyone believed that the law and the prophets pointed to to the Christ, longed and looked for the Christ. Now, here on the Mount of Transfiguration, the law and the prophets are personified, and they're talking to Jesus. And they're saying, Jesus is the Christ. They're pointing to him as the Christ. In in Deuteronomy 18, Moses pointed ahead to a prophet or or to, to a leader who would be greater than him, who would lead God's people. Right? 
In Malachi, it says that, that Elijah would usher in the, the Messianic kingdom. He, he would be the forerunner to the Messiah. And now here these guys are having this conversation with Jesus of Nazareth, who's just glowing. It's this theologically loaded moment. It's just glorious. It's awe-inspiring. It's transcendent. And so naturally, Peter interrupts the conversation, right? I mean, what else would you do? Peter's like, hey, guys, you guys, you guys hanging out? Big gulps, huh? Peter's like, man, I don't know what to do right now, but I can't do nothing. I can't just sit in this awesome moment in reverence and prayer and worship. I can't just sit here. I got to do something. I don't, maybe I'll just build some tents or something. For some reason, Peter is always in a hurry to inject his two cents, right? To, to give Jesus his plan, his idea, instead of listening for Jesus. And I take comfort in that a little bit. I take comfort in Jesus' patience more than that. Um, I think Peter just wants to do something good here for Jesus. He wants to do, he blew it six days ago. I think he was like, I want to do the right thing here. I want, I want to show that I'm back in, you know, I'm doing the right thing again. I thought about that this week. And I was like, what, what is in me? What is this drive in me that sometimes would rather do for God rather than receive from God? That wants to be busy for God rather than just sit in his presence. You ever feel that? Like, what kind of insecurity or fear or nervousness is going on in my heart that I feel like i got to cover it up with doing, with busyness? Am I trying to justify myself? I think Peter nervously interrupts this conversation in verse 4. And he says, Lord, it's good that we're here. I'll make three tents. I'll make one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. In other words, I like it up here. Like, let's stay a while. Like, there's, down the mountain, there's way too much talk about crucifixion and suffering. Let's camp out up here in glory. This is great up here. I'll make the tents, three tents. And you know what? Peter's idea shows that he does not fully understand what it means that Jesus is the Christ. Because it's like he's saying, oh, man, three of my favorite Bible heroes are up here. I'll make them tents. It'd be like saying, I'll make a tent for... For, for Yoda, uh, I'll make a tent for Obi-Wan Kenobi, and, and I'll make a tent for Luke Skywalker, because they're all Jedi masters. They're all the same, on the same level playing field. But that is not what's happening on the mountain. Jesus doesn't just need a tent. Jesus is the tent, Peter. He's the tent. Everything is under him. Like all the law and the prophets come under Jesus who is the Christ. So, Jesus is not just one hero among many heroes in the Bible. I don't know if you've ever been reading the Bible, and you're reading it through, and you're like, man, what is wrong with these people? <laughs> They're so messed up. And when you, when you catch that, you got, you got the point. They're not the hero. Jesus is, right? Well, Jesus is not just one Savior among many Saviors. He is the Savior. He's, he's the Savior of Moses. He's the Savior of Elijah. They, they, Christ was their only hope, just like Christ is our only hope. And so we see the second way that Jesus is glorious here. He's glorious in all of the Bible. 
Like all of the scriptures, all the Hebrew scriptures point to Jesus. So he's glorious in his person. His nature says so. He's glorious in all the Bible. The Bible tells me so, right? That would be enough. That would prove it to me. But there's more. It actually gets better, right? In fact, the, 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 the peak of this mountaintop experience is coming in verse 5. Look at verse 5. Verse 5. Peter was still speaking. Classic. Peter was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So Jesus is up on the mountain, or Jesus up on the mountain, he's glowing. Moses and Elijah are talking to him, uh, and then they're getting interrupted. And now the only one that's talking is Peter. And when this verse starts, Peter's still talking. Peter's still going through his plan about the tents. God the Father now shows up and wants to say something. And I think being God and all, he knows that if he waits for Peter to stop, it'll be all day. So God actually interrupts Peter in this verse. He comes down in a bright cloud, and he speaks. Now, this is very significant that God the Father speaks, because direct words from God are very rare in the Bible. You remember what happened in, in, in Exodus chapter 20 when uh, this is the Ten Commandments, they're on the mountain. The people said to Moses, Moses, you speak to us, we'll listen to you, but don't let God speak to us because we'll die, right? In, in Matthew, God the Father only speaks two times. He speaks at Jesus' baptism, and then he speaks right here, what we're looking at today. And he says the exact same thing. It's just one sentence. You know what he says? This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. In other words, that's my boy. I'm so proud of him. I I love him so much. There's, There's no one like him. In fact, he is unique. He's the only one that's eternal like me. He's the only one that looks exactly like me. I'm so pleased with him. He never, he, he never fails me. He never lets me down. He never does the wrong thing. He never rebels against me. He never contradicts me. He always does my will perfectly. That's my son. Twice in Matthew he speaks, and what's on his mind? Jesus. What's he want to talk about? Jesus. What does he think the world needs to know about? Jesus. He's got the proud papa photo album out, right? Have I shown you my son? Have you seen him? Have you, have you gotten a chance to see my son? On the mountain, though, God adds, uh, adds one little phrase at the end that he didn't say at Jesus' baptism. It's those three words at the end. Do you notice it? He says, listen to him. This is my son. I'm pleased with him. Listen to him. God's saying, if you want to know what I think, Listen to Jesus, right? I think that's significant. He doesn't say, the Father doesn't say, listen to me. The Father doesn't say, and I got some stuff to say too, and while y'all are up here, sit down because I got some things I want to say. No, he says, anything I have to communicate is, is wrapped up in Jesus. Like Frederick Bruner says that God in this moment directs complete attention to his son, his visible, audible, touchable son. And then God promises no further communication from, or direct communication 
to the church or to the world. Jesus is the final word of God. If you want to listen to God, listen to Jesus. Last week, we saw Peter confess that Jesus is the Christ. This week, we see God the Father confess that Jesus is the Christ. You can't get a better endorsement than that. That's the highest endorsement you can get. Jesus is glorious to the Father. That's the third way he's glorious. God thinks he's glorious. Now watch what happens in this moment in verse 6. Verse 6. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. Whenever anyone in the Bible directly encounters God, they're never like, sweet, this is awesome. I love this. I would love to just hang out and hear from God all day long. This is so chill, just being with God. I love this. It's never like that. Right? The, the, the holy presence of God is terrifying. It, it flattens people. The, the disciples go down on their face here. Flat on their face. It's like they're dead. But watch what happens in verse 7. This is so tender. But Jesus came and touched them. And he said, rise and have no fear. I think that's the, like the gospel in one verse, isn't it? Like we, were, we sinners were, were flattened in the presence of a holy God. Like we were dead in sin. We were fearful about our own inadequacy and our own mortality. And then Jesus came along and gently touched us and lifted us, lifted us up. He said, rise, have no fear. So the first thing that Jesus says after the Father just said, listen to him, is don't be afraid. Just get up. Don't be afraid. I mean, isn't that incredible? Like after he just got the mandate from God, command whatever you want, he uses his power to gently, to tenderly lift up his people. To pick them up and say, hey, get on your feet. Walk with me. Don't be afraid. You don't have to be afraid of God anymore because God is your Father. It's the gospel. And then in verse 8, it says, When they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. No one was left on the mountain at this moment but, but Jesus only. I take that to mean that Jesus was to be their singular focus now. Right? He is glorious in his person. He's glorious in the Bible. Uh, he is glorious to God the Father. Right? If, they, if the disciples and, and we want true glory, it will only come as we follow Jesus. Only. Right? That's the whole point of the mountain. That's what they're to learn on the mountain. But we don't stay on the mountain. We don't live on the mountain. Sometimes we have mountaintop experiences where, we, where Jesus comes more clear to us. But we don't live up there. We always come down and follow Jesus in our everyday lives. And they come down the mountain, and as they do, Jesus shows them one more way that he's glorious. Uh, He talks about his future glory. He gives them a a little glimpse. I think the mountain was a foretaste of his glory, and and then he's going to talk now about his future glory. Look at verse, it's in verse 9. And they were coming down the mountain, so you've got to come down. Or as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision 
until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And there's the promise of glory. I will be raised from the dead. I will be resurrected. I will take Satan's hardest punch. I I will take on humanity's greatest fear. I will take the worst that life can bring, and I will overcome it. I think it'd be one thing if a great leader somehow escaped death in a daring feat, right? Or or, or if, if, if a leader, you know, outsmarted his enemy and eluded death, or, or was in a great battle and was wounded, but then li- overcame the wounds and lived, that would be impressive, right? But to take on death, to actually be dead and then come back from it, that's not impressive. That's glorious. That is glorious. Jesus is glorious over death. That's what's being said here. I think Peter and the disciples need to know this. I think they need to know, Jesus, is there anything in life that's going to come our way that's too tough for, for you? And, Peter's, or, and Jesus is like, no, nothing. And I think we need to know that too. Some of you know um, that my mom uh, right now is going through chemotherapy. Um, she has had, she just on Monday had her second uh, of six infusions and uh, if, you, if you are prompted to pray for her, I would, we would love as many people to pray for her as possible. Um, we are praying that God would, would use this poison that's being injected into her body uh, to knock out the cancer. That's what we're praying. And the time being, she is struggling, right? After these infusions, she experiences pretty significant pain in her legs and joints and feet. And she's tired and weary and, and feels sick sometimes. Uh, she just lost her hair um, uh, this past week, and if you don't know my mom, but if you did, that's a lot of hair uh, that she lost. And I was thinking this morning, you know, in 1 Corinthians 11, it says that for a woman, uh, a woman's hair is her glory, right? And I, you know, that's a big deal, right, to lose your hair. And I think what my mom needs to know, and what my dad needs to know, and me and my sister and others need to know, is that no matter what happens, at the end of this 18-month chemotherapy period, no matter what happens, cancer does not win. No matter what happens. Cancer does not get the final word. Cancer does not get the glory. Because Jesus, it says here, is glorious over suffering and death. And he promises that same resurrection glory to his people. But for now, we live in a broken, fallen world, right? We, we live down the mountain, so to speak. Right? We, we live down the mountain with the glory still in front of us, the glory to come. And Jesus says, hey, the cross is going to come before glory. Right? My sacrifice will be the way to redemption. My suffering will precede my victory. The disciples, they want glory before the cross. But Jesus is like, no, the way of the cross is the way to life. That's the way to live. Here's the cool thing. I think if we as Christians actually lived like that, like if we lived in such a way that we're like, I'm going to give my life away instead of trying to hold on to it, hold on to false glory, but give, gave ourselves away a cross-centered life, I think the world would look at us and go, well, that's, so that's who Jesus is? And they would see the transformative power of Jesus. There'd be a missional witness to that, and it would be glorious, Uh, Four years 
uh, after I assembled, uh, assembled this uh, glory box, uh, Texas went back to the national championship game again at the Rose Bowl. And this time, uh, uh, we played Alabama. That was in 2009. And uh, I actually got to go to the game this time. Right? I stopped crying over that story that Lauren wrote. And I'm like, I'm going this time. This was my ticket uh, to that game. Uh, but, but, you know, you, you know that we lost the game. Uh, but I kept the ticket, and when I got back from the losing effort in California, my wife said, you know, I think that ticket is probably a better representation of what life is like than if you had won the game. And I was like, stop trying to give me perspective, <laughs> okay? Trying to feel sorry for myself. See, I wanted a 2009 glory box. I wanted another one, and this would have been the first thing I would have put in there, and then all the stuff, but I didn't get it. I I wanted to share the glory. I I wanted to say, my team's the best, but what I got was just kind of disappointment and a longing for more, and I think that, again, is probably more reflective of how life should be for a disciple of Jesus Christ, a longing for real glory, true glory. Because whenever we seek glory in something besides Jesus, we're seeking false and fleeting glory. Right, so what's your Rose Bowl ticket? Everybody's got it. Like everybody is somehow in their fallenness and sin looking for glory, looking to win in life in something. What is it? Jesus wants us to seek true glory, which is found only in him. Colossians 1 says, Christ is in us, and that's the hope of glory. We have a real hope for glory because Christ is in us. He's glorious in his person. He's glorious in all of the Bible. He's glorious to the Father. He's glorious over death. Why would we seek glory in anyone else? Let's pray. Let's thank him. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.